Hopefully we've all found Joshua 3, uh, verses will be on the screen. Let me catch you up a little bit. Uh, idea of road trip, we're following the movement of God's people. The road trips they took from beginning even to the return of Christ over the summer to see how God moved his people from place to place and what that means for us today. So um, we started with Abraham. Uh, he, was, he was in the area we now know as Iraq. Uh, it's believed that the Garden of Eden was maybe located in that area. And so after Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, uh, Abraham comes generations later. His name was Abram at that time. God speaks to him and says, um, uh, Abraham, you, I'm going to make your name Abraham and you're going to have a bunch of kids and those kids are going to have a bunch of kids and so on and so on. You are going to turn into a great nation. In fact, I'm going to give you a land um, that's going to be just for you and your descendants. Uh, I'm going to take you there. I'm not going to tell you where it is. You just need to follow me. And so he followed God and they went to the land of Canaan that we, now, that we know in scripture as Canaan and um, the area kind of where Israel and all that is now. And he saw it but he didn't get to, to really stay there and see this nation grown. So he had um, uh, an ancestor on down the line, or, or a few generations down, um, there was a guy named Joseph born. And Joseph was one of 12 brothers, and um, they had like a Jerry Springer type of relationship with each other. And long story short, they sell their brother into slavery. Um, and he goes to Egypt, but he actually, through time, becomes one of, the, one of the most powerful leaders in Egypt, a Hebrew as a leader in Egypt. And so he invites all of his family back. It is that moment in Jerry Springer where they're all sitting out on the stage and he's about to pull the card out and reveal who the dad is, right? And they're like, here's Joseph, he's going to kill all of us. But he actually offers them grace in that moment. And so he invites his brothers and all their family to come and live. And so this big family is now living in Egypt. They are powerful there. Joseph is second in command in all of Egypt. And this family continues to grow and grow and grow and expand. And they became, it became such a big group of people that the Egyptians um, started to fear them. So they enslaved them. So they went from being free in a great place to now being slaves in that place. And all through this time, there's been this spoken reiteration that there's coming a day when God's going to take us to a land that is just ours. So even though they're in Egypt with power, at one point it still wasn't their land. They were still out of place a little bit. So the nation is growing. They get close to about a million people in Egypt and one of the people living there is a man named Moses that we talked about last week. Uh, Moses was a Hebrew. Um, you got to read the details, but he ended up being raised as an Egyptian. And um, God spoke to him later in his life. Again, I'm skipping a ton of details. Spoke to him later in his life and said, I need you to go back to Egypt. And all these Hebrew people are now slaves. That's not what I want for them. I have a place I've promised them. You're going to bring them out. And so we talked about that story last week, how Moses went, brought the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, and they traveled um, kind of indirectly, but they went right over towards the promised land. And when they get to the boundary, they send spies in and the spies are freaked out because apparently there's really big people over there that are going to destroy them. So they come out and say, listen, probably the best thing for us to do is just go back to Egypt. We're safer as slaves. Let's just live that way. And that's not what God's heart was for his people. He said, no, you're not doing that. I'm going to keep you here um, in this wilderness area until all of the adults die. 
That's an uplifting story. So they all die, and then the next generations are going to go in. So they spend 40 years there, and um, God tells Moses that, Moses, you're going you're gonna to see this place, but you're not going to be able to lead the people in. Somebody else will. So that's where we're picking up today. There's somebody else now that after these 40 years, after the older generations have died, the younger generations have grown up, they're, they are right across from the promised land. They're in a, a place called Kadesh. And just so you know, they're not, they haven't been moving constantly. I think it's a big part of the story. They haven't been moving constantly for 40 years in the wilderness. They actually only moved for about two and a half years of their time in the wilderness. For 38 years, they were stationed in this territory across, um, across from the territory of where the promised land was. I mean, they could see it. They knew it was right there. But there was a boundary they were not able to cross, known as the Jordan River. So um, Moses sees it, he dies, and Joshua is brought into command. And um, so we're going to pick up in Joshua chapter 3 with this story. But before we do, I, I want us to try to get ourselves in the same mindset that uh, the, the Hebrews were in. So they have been carrying a promise that has been communicated to them for generations from Abraham through all the slave, slavery and then even through this wilderness that God had promised they would become a great nation. Well, they could look around and see a million and a half people, men, women, and children, all their possessions out in the wilderness and say, all right, we're a great nation. But part of that promise also was that God would lead them to a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, that's the promised land, that's Canaan. We know it's not literally flowing with milk and honey, um, but that it was symbolic verb, verbiage to, to say it's a, it's a place of flourishing. It's abundant good there, and that's where I want you to be. So they're not experiencing that. They don't have, like, they're not settled in the wilderness or living out of tents, um, kind of fighting to feed a million people consistently, and, um, and they can see, man, just across this river is that land, and it's lush and it's beautiful and God had promised that not only would he give them that land but the people who are living there now he's he's going to work with the Hebrews to drive them out so even their enemies will be gone and they're going to possess all this land it's going to be awesome but they're stuck here like they're stuck in this this unsettled not at home um, not enjoying the promise of God fully they're it's almost like they're trapped if you will they're kind of trapped here in the wilderness because of sin right sin of previous generations have them here and it's and they're they're stuck and they can't get to where they want to be and they can't even really try to get there on their own because there's this river. Now, we need to talk about the Jordan because if you go right now onto Google and you research the Jordan, you may come across a few pictures that show where they have actually built outside of Jericho this visitor spot. And you can go and visit where they really think the actual crossing of the Jordan happened. And you can get baptized there and all that. The thing is, right now, it's like 10 feet across, right? It has, through time, the flow has, has really dwindled. And it's almost to the part where none of the Jordan is actually feeding into the Dead Sea anymore. So just over time, we know geological structure can change and morph, right? Biblical scholars believe that back in this time, which was probably about 4,000 years ago, that the Jordan, based on the formation of the land, it's in this, uh, it's, it's in this valley called the Arabah, and um, 
it's really flat in the middle and then it rises up a little bit and in the middle of that valley is the Jordan. And so the thought is back in Joshua's time and the specific time of this passage being written, we find out that the river's at flood stage, that that river was at least 100 feet wide and at least 10 feet deep at harvest time. The, the rains would happen, water would come off the, the raised uh, landscape around them and flow into the Jordan. And so the Jordan at this time was, was known to be kind of rough water anyways, but you can imagine you add a lot more water flow into it and it's just a difficult thing to get across. Um, it's not something that you just go wade in and wade out the other side. So you have a million plus people, kids, the elderly, the infirmed, you have all their possessions and all the people that maybe they have acquired to be with them. And they've got to get across a river 100 feet wide, raging water, 10 feet deep. When we begin to really understand what was happening, we maybe have a little better appreciation for the miracle that occurs and what we're going to read as they get across this river. But put yourself in their mindset. Miracle hasn't occurred. They don't know what's happening. They're longing for this land across the way. This land of freedom and flourishing, but yet they're stuck in the wilderness, a place of unsettledness, maybe even some fear, seeing that Jordan, how are we going to get across, and maybe even doubt that God is ever going to do this for them. They didn't know when this journey would happen. It wasn't like, you know, September the 18th of 2000 BC, we're going to, they didn't know when it was going to happen. Um, and I think probably for many of us in the room this morning, we may feel similar to what the Hebrews felt as they're stationed there just waiting to be delivered from their wilderness into their promised land. And, and a lot of times the wilderness that we find ourselves in here might be similar to what they had, where they, could, they have an awareness of where they're supposed to be. They have an awareness of the goodness God has promised, yet they're not able to get there. Or, or they fear the crossing into that land for some reason. Because I, I think the majority of people who are maybe living in a type of wilderness, a place of fear and unsettledness and uncertainty, um, they're there probably because, and I would be there and you would be there, a lot of times because of our decisions, because of our rebellion, our sin, our bad judgment. In fact, in the room today, I, there may be somebody here that's, that's in that type of life. They're, they know they're not where they're supposed to be. They see what they could be. Maybe they have friends or spouses or neighbors that are living lives filled with God's spirit. They got hope. They got joy. And you're like, I just want to be that. I know I have Jesus. You might be in here and you know Jesus is in your life, but you're not living that way. And you can probably pinpoint why, why you're in that wilderness. They were in that wilderness because of their ancestors' lack of faith and disobedience. Most of us, we can pinpoint that. I know times in my life that I've been there and I can see where, where I want to be. And I know it's going to be a dangerous crossing to get there. I, I know I'm where I am. So for some of us in, in the room, it, it might be you're, you're dealing and struggling with some sort of addictive behavior. And maybe there's something going on in your life you just can't kick. And maybe you've actually gotten to that point, you realize, you know, this, this is more than a habit. This is more than a bad decision every night. This is something I can't stop doing on my own. I've tried over and over, and, and, and I'm lost in this. I can't get out of this. You see who you want to be. You know that's what God has for you, but you feel trapped in your wilderness. For others of you, it might be just a sense of shame. Maybe there's nothing you're doing now, but you can think back in your life, and in fact, you probably do often, and it just 
lays in your mind something you did that you shouldn't have done or something you didn't do that you should have done. And the shame from that just weighs heavy on you. Maybe other people have forgiven you, but you can't forgive yourself. Maybe, maybe you've said something to somebody that, that really hurt them, and now you can't take it back. Or maybe you never said something you wanted to say, and now you can't say it because of circumstances. There may be some shame there, and you're stuck in this wilderness. Uh, for others of you, it, it, it might be something um, like forgiveness or unforgiveness. Maybe there's somebody that has hurt you terribly, extreme, deep hurt, and you've never extended forgiveness to that person, probably because you believe, maybe even rightly, they, they don't deserve it. And from our standpoint, maybe not. Maybe there's people saying, they, they need to get what's theirs. They, they need to face the music. You should not offer forgiveness to that person. And we know that if we hold a grudge against someone, we all know this if we're honest, it really hurts us more than that person. They may have no idea. They're out living their best life now, right? And they have no idea that you are so torn up inside because of something you have against them. Maybe, you're, maybe the, the roles are switched and you're the person that you need to be forgiven. You've done something and maybe the person knows or doesn't know and you've tried to avoid the situation, but you know inside you long to be released from whatever that situation is. There could be a million things that we walk in this room with, some big, some small, some long-term, some recent, but I think it's a part of our life as humans. We wander into these places of wilderness knowing we're not where we're supposed to be, but also not where we want to be. Because we know what God wants for us, especially those of us in here who would claim we're Jesus followers, right? We, we know he has something better. He's designed us for something different. He's designed us to live a life of hope and joy and peace, but yet we're not there because we're in the wilderness. And we know, just like the Israelites knew, that for them to get from where they are to where they want to be is going to require two things. One, it's going to require God to move like we prayed or like we sang earlier. What an amazing song. God is still working miracles, much like the one we're going to read today. It's going to require his movement in that. But the second thing, it's like a two-sided coin. It's going to require God to move. It's also going to require us to move. And when we see the transition from now to where we want to be, what we see is this daunting raging river that we have no idea how we're going to get across. And if we attempt to, it's going to crush us. People are going to hate us. People are going to despise us. I'm going to be rejected when I offer forgiveness. When I ask for forgiveness, I'm going to be rejected as well. People may say, you're not who I thought you were, and it'll crush us. We, we don't know what that's going to look like, but taking a step in that direction scares us to death. But we need to. And that's exactly what the Israelites needed to do. So as we go through their story over just the next few minutes, what I want us to see is the definite miracle that God worked out in their lives, moving them from wilderness to promised land. But that same kind of miracle, that same kind of power that got this nation of a million and a half through an impossibility to where God wanted them to be is still at work today and can still be realized in your life right now. Whatever's holding you back, big or small, from being who God has created you to be, called you to be, who you know you are to be, and who you want to be, today God has the power to move you from that wilderness of bondage and brokenness into a land of freedom and flourishing. 
And there's a few things we're going to get from their story that I think we can apply into our lives. So let's pray and we'll start working through chapter 3. Father, thank you so much for being a God who still moves. For being a God who still works miracles. Who still brings healing and freedom. And God, I believe in this room, many of us are in a place, Lord, where we feel trapped We feel like we're not who we need to be, where we need to be. We know what you're calling us to. We're just so scared to take that step in that direction. Maybe we doubt that you can do it or we fear what others are going to think. God, through the study of your word this morning, I pray you'll give us the courage to do what's necessary to follow your leading, to enjoy a life of hope and joy and peace. And pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So we begin in Joshua chapter 3. We're going to read all the verses eventually in this chapter. We're going to just look at the first four here. Right before this chapter starts, Joshua has been uh, voted on by God as the leader to succeed Moses. And then God says, Joshua, I'm going to do amazing things through you. Be strong and courageous. And you're going to be okay. So we pick this up, verse 1. Joshua started early the next morning. And left the Acacia Grove with all the Israelites. They went as far as the Jordan and stayed there before crossing. After three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God carried by the Levitical priest, you are to break camp and follow it. But keep a distance of about a thousand yards between yourselves and the Ark. Don't go near it so that you can see the way to go For you haven't traveled this way before. So these are details that often we might just skip through. But there's something really important here. As the the, the nation has moved closer up to the banks of the Jordan. And now they're seeing this danger even more clearly. Right? Um, They had been away a little bit. Maybe they could see it in the distance. Now they're right up at it. And Joshua tells the people um, that when they see the Ark of the Covenant begin to move, they need to follow it because God's about to take them on a journey they have not experienced yet. Right? Other people maybe have. They see them over there um, living the life that they want to live. Whatever it is. As we see other people living how we want to live. They've taken this kind of journey. And We're in a place where we haven't made a journey like that before. And God says, you need to follow me in this. I can imagine that um, the Hebrews in this time were probably, they had gotten maybe to a point where their focus maybe was waning a little bit from how God was leading. Remember, he used to lead them, or he did up until this point, lead them by a pillar of cloud during the day, a pillar of fire by night. It would reside over the Ark of the Covenant, and when it moved, they moved. But for a long time now, they had been stationed in Kadesh for about three decades, three and a half decades. And they're just there. Maybe they're thinking, this is it. This is where we're going to lead. They, they had maybe even given up hope of crossing the Jordan. Yeah, there's that promise, but man, is it ever going to happen? And now they're being told, hey, the ark is getting ready to move again. And you need to follow it because now you're going into uncharted territory. I think it's easy for us when we consider our life and maybe the wilderness we're in for our focus to really be turned inward onto the situation. 
And maybe you're even beginning to believe a lie that, you know, I'm never going to be any different than I am now. This is never going to improve. I'm never going to be at the level these other people are. I'm just not meant to experience hope and joy and peace this side of heaven. It's not going to be that way for me. So we're focusing on our situation and not so much on the direction that God wants to lead us. So what Josh, Joshua was commanding the Israelites to do is the same thing that we need to do, and it's we need to adjust our focus. So where their focus may have been here, now, what I am, what's going on, this wilderness, that might be where our focus is. And instead of looking inward all the time, where all we see is this darkness and this doubt and this fear, we are called to turn our eyes from self and onto Jesus, onto the ark. Onto, onto our salvation, onto the one who has led us in the past and who wants to lead us now out of our wilderness into our promised land. Uh, when we talk about the ark, I don't know if that makes a lot of sense to everyone. Maybe we have some ideas, uh, but just so we're all on the same page. At the beginning of this journey out of Egypt, God commanded the people to build two things. One was a tabernacle and the other was what is called the ark of the covenant. When we hear the word ark, we might be thinking boat, Right? Noah's great big boat. This is actually a chest that was constructed about four and a half feet long, about two and a half feet deep, and two and a half feet tall. And artists have gone back to the Bible and looked at the details and try to recreate what this may have looked like. But I don't know if you've heard, just recently there was a group of biblical archaeologists that were on a dig over around where they think um, the Israelites would have camped in this area. And they believe they have maybe actually discovered the real Ark of the Covenant. And we've been able to get a picture of it. Can you guys put that up? Um, so that's them on their dig, finding the Ark and... This is Indiana Jones, just so you know, if you haven't seen the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark. But the neat thing about this is, although we haven't found the actual Ark of the Covenant, this is a pretty good representation of what it would have looked like. But I want you to see up on top, you see the two angels, the two cherubim, and they have their wings stretched out towards each other and touching. This place on that Ark, this Ark that was carried around everywhere they went, that led them around, the very top was called the Mercy Seat. It's where God's presence resided. And that mercy seat is when they would bring sacrifices before the Lord for the forgiveness of sins of the people. They would sprinkle blood on that place right there. And that's where God's presence resided in that tabernacle and as they moved around. So they were always following this, which represented, not just represented, but was the physical location of God's presence among his people during this time. So when Joshua was saying follow the ark, that meant something to them. That meant that God is about to lead us to somewhere different, to something new. And when we see the ark as believers in New Testament times and we hear it spoken of in scripture, we need to think Jesus. We, we need to think, okay, because everything in the Old Testament points to the New Testament and the ark of the covenant, even Noah's ark, the boat, both of these things were to point people to an eventual need that they would have to cross a divide in their life safely without harm. So they made it through the floodwaters on the ark. We're going to see in this story, spoiler alert, they're going to make it across the river because of the ark. This points us to our Savior Jesus who guides us across this chasm of sin and death that separates us from God because of our sin. He's that ark. So they're seeing this representation of God, this thing that has led them, that has guided them, that, that, that has uh, reminded them that, man, God is good and he's with us even in this wilderness. And I think maybe 
Some of us who are in the wilderness now have forgotten God's presence in our life as his children. It's a sad place for a Christian to be trapped in a wilderness because they know what God has called them to. And they stay there because they have forgotten that God wants to lead them out of that. So we need to refocus, adjust our focus from what's going on, the terrible thing that's happened, onto the God who wants to lead us out of it. And we continue on in verse 4. Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves because the Lord will do wonders among you tomorrow. Then he said to the priests, Carry the Ark of the Covenant and go on ahead of the people. So they carried the Ark of the Covenant and went ahead of them. The Lord spoke to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, so they will know that I will be with you just as I was with Moses. So, After he tells them to get their focus on the ark, on God and where he's leading, he then gives them one more instruction um, right after that. And and before they ever get ready to move, there's another instruction. And the instruction is simple. It's at the beginning of um, verse 5 where he says, consecrate yourself. So um, this, this was a practice that the Israelites would have found familiar, this idea of consecrating. Now, when we hear the word consecrate, if you've been raised in church a while, maybe you have an idea. If you're fairly new, you're like, that is a boring word, and I didn't want to hear all that stuff today. Let me explain consecrate, because it's, it's an awesome word. It's an awesome activity. The word consecrate, in, in the Hebrew understanding, literally meant to take something and remove it from other things that are kind of like it, And set it apart for a special use and purpose. If you were raised in a house that had a dining room with a china cabinet, with grandma's hand-me-down special china, you understand the idea of consecration, right? These are dishes and bowls and plates and spoons and coffee mugs and uh, glassware that it's the most expensive thing anybody in your family has ever owned and you can only look at it. Unless it's a holiday or the queen comes over, right? That's the only time these things get pulled out and used. No way you're eating your beanie weenies on grandma's fine china, right? So we're looking at it. We're seeing it. We know if, if I even touch that, I'm in trouble. Maybe you have guest towels in your house that are out and nobody can ever use them. They're the nicest towels you own. The nicest ones you own and some stranger comes in your house, they get to use it, but you never get to use it, right? It's consecrated to a specific Purpose. So when Joshua says consecrate yourself, they're hearing, okay, we, we need to make sure we're fully set apart to God and what he wants to do. And, and so they're going through ceremonial washing. They're, they're only eating certain things. They're getting their clothes clean. They're washing their bodies a specific way. They're, they're abstaining from intimate relationships. All these things to make sure that they're in a place to be used by the Lord. They're setting themselves apart. So when we hear that, you may say, well, I'm con- I've consecrated myself. I'm here today, right? Like, I'm going to give even when I walk out. I- I'm here. I'm consecrated. The, the problem is the, he- the-, the American mindset is different from the Hebrew mindset. The-, the Hebrew mindset is a holistic mindset. Everything you do affects every part of your life. So when they're thinking about their relationship with God, it, it, it impacts their work, their family, their recreation, everything. Their, their relationship with God is intertwined in all of that. The American mindset is we have boxes. And there's a box for religion. There's a box for work. There's a box for family. There's a box for this and that. And, and so we can be really religious here when we need to be i.e. Sunday mornings, but then it doesn't really affect anything else. That's how we've been trained and raised in our culture. 
But we need to adopt this Hebrew mindset that when we consecrate ourselves, it's not just on Sundays. It's just not for one thing or something else. God is asking us, as he asked the Hebrews, to make sure that every area of our life has been set apart for his purposes. And many of us are stuck in that wilderness because we've only maybe set apart one side or one area of our life, but we kind of want to hold on to some of the other things. And when we think we are the master over those things, not God, we're going to control them. Guess what? Those things are actually our master. And we are actually enslaved to them. And so until those things are consecrated over to the Lord, we're stuck in the wilderness. Just like the Israelites, if they did not take this step of consecrating themselves to God's work, they'd be stuck in the wilderness. Now I want to clarify one thing before we move on. You do not have to have everything right in your life to come to Jesus. Jesus calls out to you as you are in the mess you're in, in the pit you're in. He loves you and he wants to bring you into his family. As believers, we have a tendency to unconsecrate what we once consecrated. And now those, as followers, we're called to return to what we used to be to get out of where we are now. Does that make sense? So, so we, we go through this process, even every day, God, I want everything given to you. And if we haven't done that, or we don't do that consistently, we end up in the wilderness. So he has them consecrate themselves, and he says, once you do this tomorrow, the Lord will do a great work. So look at verse 7. The Lord spoke to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel. So they will know that, that I will be with you just as I was with Moses. Verse 8, command the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the water, stand in the Jordan. Then Joshua told the Israelites, come closer and listen to the words of the Lord your God. God said, you will know that the living God is among you. And that he will certainly dispossess before you all these enemies that are currently over across that river. The Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. When the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of the whole earth goes ahead of you into the Jordan. So he's saying, when that Ark goes in the Jordan, you're going to see my power. And you're going to see that not only am I going to be able to get you across here, but those enemies you might face, the difficulties you might face, the, the times of unforgiveness or shame that you might face across, know because I'm getting you across it now, I can defeat that then, right? Um, so he says all this, verse 12, now choose 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one man for each tribe, when the feet of the priest who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of the whole earth, come to rest in the Jordan's water, its water will be cut off. The water flowing downstream will stand up in a mass. When the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carried the ark of the covenant ahead of the people. Now listen to this. Now the Jordan overflows its bank throughout the harvest season. This is the season they were in. Raging water, 100 feet wide, 10 feet deep. But as soon as the priests carrying the ark reached the Jordan, their feet touched the water at its edge. And the water flowing downstream stood still, rising up in a mass that extended as far as Adam, a city next to Zarethan. The water flowing downstream into the Sea of the Arabah, the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. And the people crossed opposite Jericho. The priests carrying the Ark of the Lord's Covenant stood firmly on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan while all Israel crossed on dry ground until the entire, the entire nation had finished crossing the Jordan. 
Like I said earlier, I don't think we give this miracle enough credit of what actually happened. And even the way it started. So, so they're given this simple command. You see this raging river. You don't think there's any way across. All I need you to do is have the priest just tip their toes, stick their toes into the water's edge. And you're going to see me come through. Now, they had heard the, the story of Moses and that the people had crossed through the Red Sea on dry land. They had heard this. It was only 40 years earlier. Um, but the instruction is different here. See, when, when Moses did it, he didn't even touch the water, right? He just lifted his arms up. We have that great coloring page we did as a child that had him standing there and the water splitting. Some of you guys remember that. He prayed and God split it. But now I'm actually supposed to just, we're just supposed to put our feet in the water here? Really, God, that's, that's your plan? Like, that was such a weird step. It had to be, pun intended, for them to take in this moment. To get the ark and just carry it now and just step into the water. Scripture tells us that once they did that, immediately the water stopped flowing. And what you need to imagine here is, say a dam was built right there and a reservoir filled up behind it. That's basically what happened in this Arab Valley. It filled up about 20 miles back, and then they crossed on dry ground. The, pro the promised land for the Israelites was a gift of God. The miracle to get across was a gift of God. The willingness to put up with their shenanigans for 40 years was a gift of God. His desire to bring them out of Egypt was a gift. It's all grace. I hope we see in the story, it's all grace. God had a plan to do something awesome and it was all grace on his part to lead them there. So the fact that they had a step to take that didn't make a lot of sense, we look back now and we say, you know what? That step, as small as it was, as, as odd as it may seem, knowing what it resulted in, we can say that, that, that little step resulted in such amazing grace in their life. It provided the way out of their wilderness into freedom and flourishing. One little step. And I think the lesson we learned from this for us that are trapped in the wilderness wanting to get across to our promised land is that if we want to get out of here and be there, we need to, we need to follow Jesus. We need to be consecrated. And, and then we, in faith, just need to take one step into grace. One step in that direction. We are scared to do that. I think many Christians live ineffective, broken lives, not in victory but in defeat because we're scared to do that one step we know we need to do to get out of whatever this mess is we're in. So we say, I'm just going to reside here. I don't, I don't know what it's gonna, how it's going to affect me, what it's going to cost me, how I'm going to be treated if I just begin to say and do the things I need to do to follow God out of this addiction, out of this place of unforgiveness, out of this shame, into what he's calling us to. But let me tell you this. From, from reading scripture, from experiencing things like this firsthand, when you're in that wilderness, and you know God wants you somewhere different, and he's shown you what you need to do, that step you need to take, although you're thinking, if I take this step Everyone will hate me. I'll be ridiculed. I'll be abandoned. Whatever that is. We think that. But when you take that one step, all you receive from God and his people is grace. And then the rest of that journey 
across that river into that land of freedom and flourishing step by step, step by step, having the conversations you need to have, doing the things you need to do, putting these things in place every step of the way. It's grace, it's grace, it's grace, it's grace. The hardest step though is believing one, that God wants something different for us and believing two, that he'll remain standing in that river as we cross over. What if the priest had moved in the middle of that? What if the people back like, they're going to get tired and we're not going to make it across or we're going to be in the middle? When Jesus was on that cross as our ark, he bridged this gap between our sin and God's presence. And he stayed on that cross and fully absorbed all of our sin, all of our death, so that that bridge, that chasm could be bridged. We see it happen here as a symbol in the crossing of this river, and we know it happened on the cross. And many of us have experienced that already, but yet we still think now. I can trust him for my eternity, but I can't trust him in the here and now. So I want to encourage you, if you're able to identify what that might be, today, turn your focus towards him. Get your mindset back on him. Consecrate your whole life to his purposes. And that one thing you know to do, that one thing that's scary, that one thing that overwhelms you, in faith, believing that God is good, take that step, and I promise you, you'll receive his grace. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your truth, your word, and all that you reveal to us, God, through your word. Not just here, but in our daily life. God, you are good. And Father, I pray for my friends in the room this morning, Lord, who walk in here, and maybe they're in the wilderness and they don't even know it. They've never even recognized your love for them. They're, they're living apart from you and they don't think there's any hope to get out of this life into anything better. Lord, I pray they hear the truth that Jesus loves them and is calling them as they are into his life, into his family, and that they would take that step this morning. And then I pray for my friends in here that maybe are believers, but yet feel still trapped in this wilderness, whatever it is. Lord, give them the courage to fully give their life over to you and take that little step that seems so monstrous towards you and towards your grace. And God, I pray that as they do that, you will shower them with your unending love and mercy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.